For Delaware State of the Arts, I'm Andy Truscott. My guest today is L.J. Sisko. L.J. is the author of two books of poems, her debut full-length collection, The Daughter of Man, selected by Patricia Smith for the Miller-Williams Poetry Series, released in April of 2023, and Battledore, a chapbook about early motherhood, published in 2017 by Finishing Line Press. A former high school English teacher, Sisko now writes full-time as Director of Executive Communications at Delaware State University. She lives in Wilmington with her family. LJ, thanks so much for joining me today. And as we kick off, how did you get started as a writer? And what do you think inspired you to pursue specifically poetry and prose? Well, thank you so much for having me. And I guess by way of answering that question, I should say that I am not the usual suspect, I don't think. I was not the kind of kid in high school to necessarily sit under a tree with a book of poems, looking emo about it, sort of, right? Um, I did, I was always uh, a humanities student, very lopsided in that regard. Nobody wants me to do their accounting. Um, but I do think that in college, as an undergrad at Lafayette, I took a required creative writing course with the poet Lee Upton. And that course really changed everything. In terms of other folks who were with me at Lafayette, I think it's notable to say that the poet Ross Gay was also uh, in that class, maybe two years ahead of me at Lafayette. The former poet laureate of Philadelphia, Yolanda Wisher, was also there with us. So we had a little bit of a cohort at Lafayette. And the poems that I wrote in that class really got me started. The first one that I ever submitted to a contest, I won that contest. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's really nice. Um, thank you so much. And went on my way. And then when I was a senior, the poet Gerald Stern came to campus and judged another contest, and I won that one. And I thought, oh, all right, well, maybe two points make sort of a pattern, but it wasn't until three happened. Um, and this part is a little bit um, tonally different. I had postpartum depression after my daughter was born, and I had left writing completely, just sort of behind as an undergrad, went into business, which is something I should not have done, but I did anyway. And after the birth of my daughter, I just had a really tough time. And I called my husband, basically, he was at work from the floor, physically on the floor. And um, we were talking about kind of my identity, the feeling of having had lost myself um, sort of chemically and experientially, even though I enjoyed being a mother, I felt out of control of my body and my spirit. And he said, well, why don't you do something with poems. You were always good at that. And uh, he encouraged me to give Lee Upton a call. I did. She answered the phone. She was so gracious. I'll never forget it. Um, she remembered me, which was an amazing start. And she said, you know, Gerald Stern is starting a low residency MFA in poetry at New England College, which is in Henniker, New Hampshire. Why don't you apply? So it was the only MFA program I applied to. And I applied because, well, I thought, well, Gerald Stern liked one of my poems once. Maybe maybe I'll have something. And I went. And um, for those who don't know, low residency MFAs are amazing. They're like art camp. So it basically takes two years. And you 
spend two weeks on a campus, wherever it is, every six months for those two years. And in the intervening period, you're corresponding with a faculty member working on critical and creative writing. And so I loved every second of it. And um, I learned so much from that program. So that was from 04 to 06. And here I am in 2023 with my debut full length. So it's a much longer story than the one that I've already told, but I'll stop there. That's kind of the explanation for my start. But I think important, right, to note that uh, these things aren't quick and aren't immediate. Like I think a lot in the younger generations might think like, oh, if I write this, it's going to make me millions immediately. I mean, this has been a labor of love for you back from 06 when you were in college, right, to now your first full length book in 2023. Um, this is not you know, a quick and easy thing. This is something deliberate. You strategize on it and, and you move forward when, when the pieces are there. Would that be a yeah. I think that's true. I mean, strategy definitely came into it for me with this book. Um, there, I, I obviously, I had a teaching career. I was teaching high school English for 14 years in Wilmington. I started at Wilmington Friends and then um, was a teacher and department chair for 12 years at Tower Hill and in that time, I was also raising my two children. And so those things were first and foremost in my mind and on the clock. But I also was working on poems, just not as diligently because they weren't really on the front burner. I would take pieces of summer break, for example, and try to kind of dial in. Um, and then I spent some years doing prose. So I put the poems down in let's say 2013 and worked on two novels from 13 to 16 and then picked up the poems again, which accounts for the chat book in 2017. So from that point forward, I was working on poems, but it wasn't really until I left teaching full-time in 2020 that I really had the brain space and also the time as my children were older and kind of needed me less, right? You're not physically chasing a toddler around the house anymore. Um, and so that makes a big difference. Um, but to go back to your word strategy, I really thought about after Battledore, which is a, a short chapbook of poems, fundamentally about the experience of postpartum depression and pregnancy and early motherhood. So it's really a kind of memoir-y poetry book. I did not want to do that again. And I thought hard about what can I do that feels a little bit more like documentary poetics, but still um, kind of deploys the particular voice that I have as a poet. And I landed on working on poems that unerase female visual artists. My daughter bought me a book on a field trip actually called Broad Strokes. And it's basically, you know, a couple of pages. It's like an anthology of different Western visual artists that probably a lot of people haven't heard of. One of whom is Artemisia Gentileschi, who is a Renaissance painter whose father was a disciple of Caravaggio. And she ended up having a successful career as a painter, but she's most well known for a crazy episode in her biography in which she was sexually assaulted by one of her painting tutors. So um, I tell people, you cannot make this stuff up. This particular tutor was hired to train her how to paint perspective, 
right? So how to do lines of perspective and foreshortening and all of that, right? But um, after the sexual assault, it became an enormous episode in the community. Her father tried to sue to get the guy to marry her. He was already married. No one had known about that um, in an effort to try to save her reputation, which is ridiculous. All of this, these centuries later, it's still something that we're seeing today. Um, but she really went through a lot and ultimately kind of came out the other side, working mostly as a painter for the Medici family. So this is the kind of thing that I sort of embarked on, was thinking about why I'd never heard of these particular painters and seeking to unerase them, responding to their work in my poetry. And that's kind of accounts for, I would say, the first third of the manuscript that I had wrote. As we think about The Daughter of Man, the book that just was released here in April 2023, can you just discuss a little bit about your approach to uh submitting or compiling these these pieces together into one one entity and how did you go about doing so I sort of ran out of steam on the visual art element that I was just talking about and I was casting about in 2019 early 2020 for another way into the poems and I started thinking about self-portraits. There are a few self-portraits in the book, the, probably the most significant of which is self-portrait with bubblegum, which accounts for the cover art. So the Daughter of Man, the title is a feminist retort to Rene Magritte's painting, The Son of Man. And people will recognize it if I say, it's the one of the guy in the gray suit with the bowler hat and the green apple obscuring his face. And so what Magritte was attempting to say there is that there are sociopolitical forces that render us homogenous, particularly the masculine, so that we all have a kind of monolithic identity and it doesn't really matter what our faces look like. And what I'm saying is, okay, well, I accept that premise. And if that is true, then what happens to the female if you layer on the sclerotic force of patriarchy? And so what I wanted to do was, instead of obscuring the daughter's face, I wanted to basically render her voiceless. And I thought about, well, okay, so take away the green apple, what do I have? And I came up with the gum. It felt like a kind of 80s album cover, a little bit you know, um, satirical, a little bit arch. She looks almost superciliously feminine, but there's a level of fierceness maybe fear associated with the image um, of that character on the cover. And Magritte's character is kind of standing on a, a like a patio with a flat ocean behind him. And what I wanted to do was put the daughter in the ocean to sort of say, is this a fun day at the beach or is she in real trouble here? And the fact that it's both is kind of part of what I'm doing with the poems. There's a lot of antithesis in these poems. Is it this or is it that? And it could be both or really a third thing that's neither. So um, when I was putting the book together, I started actually the way the book was arranged when Patricia Smith selected it for the Miller Williams poetry series. Um, it was arranged according to 
genres of Western visual art. So it was nudes, self-portraits, animals, genre and history, and then landscapes. And over the course of COVID, as our world got smaller, my canvases got bigger. So the landscapes kind of happened last in the creating of the poems in the book. But over the, the period of time, I submitted the manuscript to Arkansas um, Press in September of 21. And I was notified that it had been taken by the press in June of 22. So that's a lot of time to spend still working on the manuscript and still writing new poems. And um, ironically, I rearranged completely the manuscript to the way that it is now in the book two days before Patricia Smith called me in June. I finally kind of got up the, the gumption to sort of say, okay, I think this book with the new poems has broken out of the schema that I had been using. So these buckets of Western visual art, and it moved into a space having more to do with the development of a, a female character over a life cycle. So I used the heroine's journey. I don't know if folks are familiar with Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey, but that's a pretty sort of predictable set of steps that the hero goes through. And it's much more filled out than the heroine's journey, which is really scant, um, as you can imagine, because of the treatment of the fem feminine in Western literature. Um, and I thought, well, I could do this but it just feels really skeletal. And it wasn't until I made up a new phase. So the, the way the heroine's journey works, it goes from the maiden, and it feels sort of fairy tale like the maiden to the queen, to the crone, as though the feminine is divvied into these sort of, you know, beginning, middle, end chapters, and that's it. So she goes right from being an innocent, uh, naive girl to full leadership, running a kingdom because the king's either dead or crazy. And then she falls off the map, is pushed to the edge of the kingdom as a kind of muttering pariah, right? And becomes a crone and that's it. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to deploy this particular schema, I'm going to need to correct for it too. So I actually added the warrior phase between the maiden and the queen to account for how embattled the feminine is in contemporary life. And then I came up with the maven with a V to plug in that crazy space between queen and crone. And so once I did that, I thought, aha, I have it. That's how I'm going to arrange this manuscript. And a lot of fun happened from that point. As you think about the experiences you've had from just your, your beginnings of writing to today, what advice do you think you'd give to either an aspiring writer, uh, your younger self, particularly those who are balance or looking to balance writing with other professional or personal responsibilities? I think it's really important to always learn. Um, there's a, a really interesting psychology, I think, that working artists have to have. There has to be a kind of grandiosity, a sort of egotism that suggests 
I have something unique to say and only I can express it. And then there has to be the opposite. There has to be a kind of humility that drags down on that egotism to ask, well, why would I ever imagine that I have something that needs to be said? You know, for who, for what? And I think that the extremes that can happen in any artist are a little bit dangerous. So that if you're swinging like a pendulum from one to the other of those, and you're not spending a significant amount of time kind of still in the middle, evened out, kind of one foot in each bucket, like Colossus, right? Um, then you're probably in a tough spot. So whatever. I think I think whenever I feel like um, I'm maybe swinging too much between those two extremes and the vacillation is just a little bit too gymnastic, the remedy for me is to go learn. So it pulls me out of the who of the thing and sends me over into the it, right? You can't be too wrapped up in, well, who I am, right? Who, who am I? What space do I take up? in the artistic world. Um, you know, what do people think of me? All of that stuff is really toxic. And I think the more you can send yourself over into the it of it, well, what am I saying? What are the craft elements? Um, what, what do I not know? Where can I go to hear a different conversation to enrich my toolkit? And so over the time I have, really since I left my MFA in 06, I have spent time at least once a year someplace learning, whether it's a workshop over a weekend or um, somewhere online virtually. And now there's so much cool stuff that you can do right from your own house um, virtually, generative workshops, other types of workshops. And I think for, for poetry, it's a particularly rich time um, to be working. So that's what I would say is, um, you know, the pace at which you're working is all right. Um, there tends to be a kind of, I don't know if it's patriarchal or what, but I do think there's a certain ethos in the art world, probably everywhere that says, You've got to put your hard hat on and report to the desk at, you know, 9 a.m. or or like get up. I love these. Get up at, you know, four in the morning before your children wake up and and hit the desk while it's fresh. And 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 I mean, I admire people who can do that, but I just also think that there's something really important about maintaining e equilibrium in your life. And maybe not pushing yourself so hard that you send all of the other aspects of your life out of joint. I would imagine your writings evolved over time, right? But maybe the themes or subjects don't. Do you find that there are specific themes or subjects that you you continue to return to again and your get and again in your writing? Yeah, I mean, I'm very definitely a feminist writer. Um even though I have taught really everything. I mean, I taught Shakespeare for 14 years and I do think that stuff makes its way into our writing. I think 
in large measure, what I'm responding to are specific experiences in my life that feel tonally aligned to what I do. So a lot of my poems are a little bit like pop art. They take a kind of image and strange them up. So, you know, I'm I'm trafficking largely in the quotidian things, objects, words, stories that feel accessible, but I am braiding them in a way that sends them into a different, more unique, hopefully, um, territory so that people can see, for example, suburban, middle-class, mid-Atlantic existence from a whole different vantage point. As we think about what's next for LJ, what exciting projects you have coming up? Yeah, for sure. I think I'm working on two things. um, And I think I need to do that because I have uh, a tendency to be very voicey in my poems. And so that stuff usually derives from my daily existence. So there's that. I need a kind of avenue for it. And what um, I'm tentatively titling that is the cul-de-sac vexicon. Vexicon is a malapropism from my son who was trying to say the word lexicon. And he said vexicon. And I thought, oh, that's so funny. It could be a catalog of things that vex us. And cul-de-sacs are just dead ends in suburban neighborhoods, right? So it seems like a really sort of Foucaultian image that I like. Um, And then the other project, it's a similarly kind of um, intellectual documentary poetics vein from, you know, the one that I started down when I began The Daughter of Man, I'm thinking about researching Levitt and Levittowns. So um, my dad actually grew up in the first Levittown in New York because his father was a roofer for Levitt. Um, and all of his, you know, uncles and so on knew Bill Levitt and, and one of them was good friends with him. And then they moved to the Pennsylvania Levittown, the second one to build that. And that's where my dad settled. Um, and I grew up in Yardley, Pennsylvania, just to hop skip from there. So it feels like the kind of project that would make sense for me because it has narrative elements Um, It's set in the mid-Atlantic suburbs and it's sort of, I feel like that's my milieu. Um, So that's where I'm headed next. And I've got my dad to to answer some questions for me too. So that's great. And finally, as we wrap up here, for you, LJ, as an individual artist and a writer, um, right now, what do you deem success to look like in your career? Hmm. Boy, I mean, that is such a, such an existential question. I mean, I, I think there are, there's probably um, a section of myself that answering honestly would say, look, every penny that I threw into a fountain from 2006 till June of last year had the wish of a full length poetry book riding on its back. And so now that I have done that, I'd like to be able to keep going, but I also know what it feels like. My husband jokes, I'm, I'm the dog who caught the car. 
right? You, you, you spend all this time barking after it and chasing it. And then uh, you catch up to it. Oh, uh, how do I, you know, what is this thing? Um, and I think it's important to say, is what I'm, is what I'm expressing as an artist truthful? Is what I'm expressing as an artist brave? And if those two things are true, then hopefully what follows is an emotional response in the reader that may or may not include a feeling of, oh, that's beautiful, or, oh, that's shocking, or some overlap of those two. I hope to make people feel something. I think any teacher listening to me talking right now would recognize what I say when I say this, that there is no more beautiful contact that you can make with other human beings than the one that you make inside of a classroom. And I'm so lucky to have had 14 years of that. I do think that in an ironic way, writing books is a slower way to do that. It's a slower, less personal way to do it. And so if you can break through the page and kind of grab on to somebody and ask them to care about what you're saying and in turn ask them if this is resonating with them, that's the kind of connection that you have with your students. And so hopefully through the poems, that's what I'm achieving. LJ, thank you so much for joining me today. And if you'd like to learn more about LJ's book, see what's coming up next, or to even just learn more about uh, writing, you can visit her website at ljsisko, that's S-Y-S-K-O.com.